like to live with obsessive compulsive disorder, also known as OCD. What do you do when you realize the life path you have started on feels overwhelming and sends you into a spiral of anxiety? And what can those experiences teach us about empathy and sitting with our own and others' distress? In today's episode of The Anxiety Advantage, 20-something Ellie Russell talks frankly and movingly with me, Yang Mei Ui, about living with anxiety as a child and throughout her life. Welcome to The Anxiety Advantage, the podcast that asks, how can we thrive in an age of anxiety? I'm Yang Mei Ui. I'm a writer and podcaster. I'm not an expert on anxiety. I have no medical or therapy type qualifications. I'm a writer. And like many people, I have struggled with anxiety. My purpose in these podcasts is to explore with curiosity how these very human feelings affect all our lives. I'm joined today by Ellie Russell. Ellie suffered from OCD obsessive-compulsive disorder, as a child, which was only diagnosed when she was 12. Now, 26, she continues to live with anxiety daily. She has trained in the Montessori method and is currently working as a nanny. She blogs about her anxiety and hopes to develop her writing into a career in the future. Ellie Russell, thank you so much for coming on to the Anxiety Advantage podcast. Thank you for inviting me. It's very exciting. (laughs) Now, as a child, you had undiagnosed obsessive compulsive disorder, otherwise known as OCD. Could you tell us what that was like for you? Yeah, well, we, we weren't aware that it was a sort of problem that could that had a name that I could that we could put a name to when I was going through it and it was only a lot later when I was much older that I that we realized that's what it was when I was being diagnosed as a teenager but as a child it was it just was habit I suppose that we thought I just did at bedtime largely that was the time that they were most obvious and I would insist on sort of these phrases that I would say that we have no idea where they came from it was one was no policemen no monsters no bears and I would insist that it had to be said before I went to sleep out loud to my mum or my dad and then that would then be repeated back to me to reassure me of something unknown and also counting to 20 which I had to do before I went to and I just had this very strong memory of sometimes there being a confusion if I forgot to say my no policemen, no monsters no bears to my parents and they started to go downstairs and suddenly I remembered I knew that I couldn't go to sleep without saying it and I would try and shout it to them but sometimes we'd get confused and start shouting numbers at them because I also had to count to 20. And then I would realise my mistake and start again. And then there were just uh, there were some other things about positions of bear, teddy bears in bed and things like that. But I, yeah, at the time, it wasn't something we were concerned about. It was just something that I did. That was slightly weird. Can you remember what that feeling was like? It must have been awful to feel that sense of you had to say these things. Are you able to describe it for us? It was just a feeling, there was just a feeling that if I don't say this, I'm not going to be able to sleep. 
There was a feeling in my chest sitting there that it just had to come out. And if it didn't, that feeling was just going to sit there and I was just going to lie awake until it was resolved. And if that meant going downstairs and saying it to my parents in the living room, then that's what I had to do. And I, yeah, that, that was my main record. And it was quite annoying because I did actually share a room with my brother for several years when I was younger. And I remember him finding it slightly frustrating that I would need to do this recitation every evening before my parents could leave the room. And do you remember what your thoughts were? You've described the physical sensation, lying there at night, awake, not able to sleep. Are you able to recall what was going through your mind? I really struggle to remember what the sort of thoughts were, really, other than it's really important that I say this, but I don't recall what sort of particular anxiety was attached to it. It's, yeah. And what then eventually led your parents to take you to see a doctor about that? That was much later because I used to do this, these bedtime rituals from when I was very young, when I was five, six years old, but I didn't see a specialist, a therapist, if you like, until I was 12 or 13. And that was because I'd had a, had a Christmas period of having really bad anxiety and obsessive thoughts. And my OCD had become very bad. Not that I had a name for it, but I was doing these rituals and obsessing on touching lots of things and counting things before I went to sleep and checking my door multiple times or touching the curtains before I went to sleep. And it was becoming very difficult for me to just manage day to day because I was very aware of this need to do these things and very anxious about everything. And eventually that led to my parents seeking out support locally and finding a therapist who instantly diagnosed this and gave it a name as OCD, which was great because it suddenly was a thing that I could, other people had. It exists in the world. I'm not this strange person who does these things. Other people do them. And these obsessive thoughts and compulsions and things in it as a name. And it has a sort of solution in a way, like there are ways that I can manage it. It was a relief to have a, a name for it. Suddenly I could tell people that like, I have OCD. This is the thing that I have. And it, when I'm doing these odd behaviours, I can say to myself, it's not me, it's my OCD. This is my OCD making me do this. As if it and, was a sort of another person, you know. And being able to separate that out from you, it must have been quite scary before you had the diagnosis that you were thinking, what's wrong with me? Why am I doing this? Yeah. Yeah. I remember that Christmas period when all these, like, I was having a lot of obsessive thoughts, um, mainly like lots of stuff going on in my head. And I was just thinking, what, why, what? I'm very strange. Why am I having these thoughts? I'm a bad person because I'm having all of these thoughts that I can't seem to control. And I'm, this makes me a sort of bad person. I don't understand myself. And then suddenly it was a, there was a label and I realized that it was actually quite a common thing <laughs> that, that other people in the world had. And that did make it a lot better. And so, so now over time, we'll go back in sequence, but just to reflect now, do you f are you still managing the OCD or has it gone? How does that appear in your life? It comes and goes. I've gone through sort of bad periods and then I've had a relief, a period where suddenly I feel more in control of the situation and I take the time to do all the things that I was taught to do in 
my sort of initial counseling CBT sessions, cognitive behavioral therapy, I was taught all these ways to manage it and test, test thoughts out before I felt, before I followed through with a compulsion. So when my brain was telling me, you need to touch the curtains five times instead of doing it instinct instantly to take a moment and say, let's just see if in half an hour, I still feel like I need to touch them. And then maybe I'll have forgotten about it in half an hour. And actually it turns out that it's fine. And some, for periods of time, I would feel incapable of doing that. I'd feel like the anxiety was too much and I couldn't manage to do those things. And then sometimes the anxiety was not so bad that I would actually make myself do those little tests. And then suddenly it would feel much less significant. And I would be doing fewer of these little compulsions before bed because I tested them out a couple of times and knew I could get to sleep at night if I didn't touch everything and count them. So that was actually, that's quite an interesting comment that you made that by having tested it out, it proved to yourself that actually you could go to sleep without doing it. So that there is in your, you've experienced an alternative to being controlled by the compulsion. Yeah, definitely. I, but as I say, it's slightly strange because it comes and goes and in terms of sometimes I'm very aware that I know that this isn't necessary and that I can sleep at night if I don't do these things. And then sometimes the sort of anxiety is almost too much and my brain just can't, it's going, well, I know that may have been the case in the past, but tonight we're going to do it because if we don't and we don't sleep, you know, that's going to be a problem. If I knew that I had school the next day or something going on and I had to be up early and I had to be going all day, then I would go, I'm not going to try testing anything tonight. I'm just going to touch everything that my brain tells me to. And I'm going to count everything my brain tells me to because I just want to get to sleep. Whereas on when I knew that wasn't the case, then I would give myself that opportunity to say, if I need to lie awake for three hours because I'm anxious and then it eventually passes and I fall asleep, that's fine because I don't have to be anywhere. <laughs> Now, so that was about age 13 and 14. And eventually you went to university and you found that very difficult. What were some of the challenges that you faced there? I remember distinctly actually telling a friend when I was 14, I'm not going to university. But when I'm done with compulsory education, I'm not going any further. And she just thought I was completely mad because that was the sort of assumption that you would go. And I had always questioned whether that was going to be right for me, just because academia was not the world that I felt was comfortable in. I got a lot of anxiety around school and exams and tests and things like that. Um, but I did apply to university to do English literature initially because that's what I enjoyed at A-level and it's what my teachers said that I would be good at and encouraged me to do. And I applied for quite good universities and had good, very good offers back. And I had a gap year in the hope that I would find something else that would mean I didn't have to go to university. And that didn't happen. And I got to round to the summer and I hadn't found anything else to do. So in September, off I went to university to study English literature. And within the first week, I knew that it was a mistake because I was incredibly anxious. I remember sitting in the first lecture and just feeling sick because I just couldn't understand what was going on around me. I was in a hall with 200 other people my age. And then there was some smart person standing at the front at a sort of lectern thing and just talking about something. 
And we people around me were all writing notes and scribbling stuff down. And I had no idea what was going on. I couldn't listen and write. So I was just all over the place trying to work out what to do. And then it ended and we were just told, off you go. Now you're going to go to a seminar and sit in a room and talk about what you've just heard. To which I had nothing to say because I didn't understand what had just happened. And then we were given an essay title and told, come back in three weeks time and hand that in, please. And it felt very, there wasn't enough instruction there. (laughs) It felt very overwhelming. And I just knew that I had been right the whole time and that it wasn't the place for me. But I kind of felt stuck there for a while. There's something there around learning styles. And actually, it occurs to me that there may be other, many other young people who are in your situation. They may not necessarily have OCD, but they may have a sense of, oh, gosh, I don't, this is not how I best learn to have someone talk at me scribbling notes and so on. And that um, we are all channeled into university because we think that society thinks that, you know, uh, academia is the place where young minds are formed and, you know, we create the next generation. But that's not necessarily the case for everyone. And I know you have some views about that. Would you like to share them? One of the early things that I did in response to my feelings about the university thing was write my feelings down. And I remember making this point that like, we're all put on this treadmill and we're just assumed to kind of go along. You go to school, you do your A-levels and then off you go to university and then you get a degree and then you get a job. And everyone around me was just seemingly doing that and talking about doing that. And nobody suggested that there was an alternative. And so that's what I ended up doing. But I don't think that it is for everybody. And it I knew that it wasn't for me from a young age because I'd been saying this for a, a long time that I didn't want to go to university. And I just needed someone to tell me what the alternatives were. And nobody was doing that until it got to the point where I'd tried the university thing, established that it wasn't for me. And then suddenly there was an opening for us to look at what the other options were. And there are other options. (laughs) And I did find an option that worked much better for me. And I am very happy that I did. And we'll come to that in a moment. And I, because I think I want to just stay a little bit with this idea of one size fits all, which ends up with quite a large percentage of young people perhaps feeling that they are failures and having unnecessary anxiety around oh, I can't do university. What's wrong with me? You know, I can't fit into this mould. And so you end up having, at the very formative period of your life, a sense of failure, having to give something up. And that's not necessarily the fact that they are failures, but it's just that it's the wrong, it's a square peg and a round hole. And if at an earlier stage among schools and so on, there can be options and um, more tailor-made and more career advice for young people around following a career path that might be more suited for their learning style, their personality, their temperament, and so on, we wouldn't necessarily have to kind of impose a sense of failure and not fitting in on a number of young people. I feel like there are lots of different options. And actually, I became aware of them after I dropped out of university that 
first time, I suddenly became aware of other people around me that had actually also not followed in that path or had done what I'd done and started it perhaps because they'd felt they had to and then learned that they didn't. And then I learned that, you know, such and such down the road had started working at the age of 19 somewhere and has just been working their way up since. And they were then in their early 20s and had, you know, were having a great time and their friends were still not graduated from university and they were, you know, in the field that they wanted to be in and working. And others that had actually, even at even my school, I learned that some had gone on to do apprenticeships and similar things where they were just working and studying at the same time. And I only really became aware of those when I was in the position of suddenly questioning it all and looking up what the options were, because it's not for everyone. And even if you look at someone on paper, it doesn't mean that if someone is academic or has, does well, perhaps I should say, in school in the school environment seemingly on paper, that doesn't mean that they are made for that further education in the same way. I was I did well at school. I was very good at school because I worked very hard, but that was largely driven by anxiety. I was a very anxious child. So when I did my homework, I spent three hours on a homework that other people were spending 20 minutes on because I needed it to be perfect and I needed to get it right. And I would cry a lot over my homework because I wanted it to be brilliant. And I did very well. And that led to people assuming, oh, she's very clever. She's very smart. She should go to university. But that was completely the opposite of what I needed because that environment created this anxiety in me that I just didn't want to have to deal with in that big academic environment. And I think there's something to be said for someone in your position where you realised early on at university and you stepped back and then changed your career path. Because I'm just thinking of some of the people that I've come across. There's this teacher who basically he's a very smart cookie, and but he just teaching isn't suited for him. And he, but he set up his life in such a way that he's married, he's got children, he's got, you know, a mortgage and so on. And, but he's recently taken the step to go and learn to be a car engine, a car mechanic because he loves cars. And it's like, wow, that is brave. But he had, you know, what, what, difficult what a difficult decision at this later stage in life whereas perhaps if at an earlier stage someone in his position could have gone down the apprenticeship car mechanic route and there's no shame to it you know never mind about university just do this thing which you're really good at and you love so i think there's something to be said about listening to your anxiety and taking an action at an early stage rather than trying to go along and then building up this sort of structure where you then have to unravel so you were able to find a new vocation that suited your temperament and also your skills. Could you tell us about that? Uh, it was actually my mum that, that found the course that I ended up doing after that. And I remember sitting on the sofa with her and her saying, you know, you love children and you love working with children, looking after children. And we've established that the sort of university learning style and even the school, the way school is taught, where you're sitting in a at a desk being talked at and then having to memorize lots of things is not the, is not your style of learning. So perhaps training in another style of learning in Montessori is, would perhaps be suited to you because that involves children and it involves a style of learning that you value 
and that you would actually be enthusiastic about passing on to another generation of children. And I, and obviously the fact that we'd be learning about this style suggested that the teaching would also be reflective of the style that we'd be learning about. And I remember looking at this course and being excited for once about what that would be like. I'd done placements in schools in my the sort of nursery school that I grew up in, including in fact the Montessori that I went to when I was very little for two years, when I was two, three years old. And I did know that I loved being in that environment with little children and helping them learning. And so it made sense. And I remember looking at the website for this course and the sort of breakdown of the modules and how you were assessed and things and being quite encouraged by the sort of practical elements that you were going to, we were going to be learning about and the, the hands on nature of the sort of teaching. And can you describe the difference between academic style of learning and the Montessori style? So the Montessori style of learning is very much based on learning through your senses, learning through your hands and the importance of experiencing things in order to learn. So it's far less about just reading and being read to and it all being very abstract and much more about learning letters through feeling them with your fingers made of sandpaper and holding objects in your hand and identifying them physically when you're learning to read or make sounds. You hold a cat and make the cuff sound rather than looking at a picture in a picture book. Everything was much more physical. And when we were learning about the philosophy, we were experiencing all of the materials ourselves because obviously we'd have to teach them to the small children so we part of it was learning them ourselves which was great and it was all very much a physical hands-on learning style there was a lot of working in groups and talking about things and doing presentations and much less of the sitting and listening to someone talk and just being made to make notes it was very much more back and forth with the teachers and conversational and it made much more sense to me in a learning style as a learning style yeah that makes me think of how i how i had to learn law for my law qualification so i read english at uni and that was easy for me because I just read books and I didn't go to any lectures, which was very naughty of me. And I read the textbooks and then I wrote the essays. And so that was a slightly different experience from you. But when I went to law college, I remember we were taught, I trained as a solicitor. So we had to to learn not just the law, but also legal procedure. So we had to learn things like back in the old days, you know, triplicate copies of this order and quadruplicate copies of that order and so on. It was all, it was quite practical, but because these are the documents you have to serve in court, but it's like, oh my God, how am I going to remember all this? And it was really difficult. But I, re I there are other courses, other pathways into the law, into the law. You can be a legal executive, which means that you're working in a law firm. 
And then as you're working, you can do your exams. And actually that must, you know, it's hard in its own way because you're working a full-time job and you're doing your exams, but it also must be a little bit easier because you know, you're handling those triplicate documents and you're actually doing it. So when you come to sit down and do the exam, you go, oh yeah, well, I've experienced going to the court and handing in this document uh, and so on. And I remember trying to memorize all kinds of law cases. And I found myself reading them out loud in a strange accent because that helped me remember this case is the one with the American accent. This one is the one with, with the accent that has no place, but it, I'm just gobbledygook. But, and I guess that's what I'm saying is I'm in, instinctively, I was trying to learn in a physical way that I, nobody taught me how to do that, but I found that it worked. And so I think what you're saying is, you know, we are human beings. We are not just brains on a stick. <laughs> there are different aspects that will help us remember things, that will help us ex- experience things. And actually, then it's much more holistic in terms of the learning style. I remember doing similar things in terms of my learning, doing things like putting sticky notes at different positions in my bedroom and then memorizing based on where they were above the sink, is this study or it's. Yeah, there's definitely different ways of learning that you need to find what way works best for you. And it's, I found it much easier in a world in which I was learning a learning style that was physical to then apply that in the classroom when I was having to write my essays or I did have to remember something, I could do it because I'd experienced it physically. And that made much more sense to me. And I think it makes much more sense to quite a lot of people, but they don't know that's a sort of option in how to learn because they've been so used to sitting at a desk. And so in this period, how, what was happening with your anxiety? It was still very much there, although it had got Better. I remember by the end of the first year, I was in a position where I felt like I could come off the anxiety medication that I'd been put on a year previously. And I started to cut back. And actually, I learned from that experience that, in fact, at the moment, I'm in a, or at that point in time and continuing, my brain needs a bit of help. So although I was clearly not feeling the anxiety was overwhelming me and felt comfortable to try and come off medication. My anxiety did come back in quite a big way and made my studying quite difficult for a period of time. And I learned from that, actually, I need the medical help. So I went back on it. But I had a lot of support around me and all of my tutors were very aware of my anxiety. I had a learning assistant that I saw once a week and I would very happily cry to her or to any tutor whenever I was just feeling overwhelmed by everything. And they were very good at helping me to break down an essay assignment or similar and tell me what I needed to do and what actually was just extra that perhaps my anxiety was making me feel I had to do to make something perfect. So for you, there are 
almost like two aspects of anxiety. There's the anxiety that's part of you that you've been growing up with ever since you were a child. And then there's the anxiety that's, I guess, made worse or put on top of that by, by certain situations. For example, going to university where it didn't suit you. So it went into overdrive and made things worse. Whereas by following the career path and the learning path that suited you, that top layer, you could just kind of take a bit of a break. But the ongoing, the you, the sort of anxiety that you've grown up with is still there, but it's not made worse. Would that be a fair description? Yeah, I think that is probably right. It was the anxiety that I'd kind of had consistently throughout school that continued at the sort of extra layer that I really hadn't been managing well in that period of time that I'd been at university the first time round and that hadn't suited me. That was like an extra level that also made me very low mood-wise and just very generally unhappy. But the anxiety that I was then suffering while I was doing my Montessori course was much more than what I was used to having throughout my time at school. It was the anxiety that just sat there while I was doing an assignment that was like, I've got to get this right. I've got to, I want to get a good mark. I want to understand what I need to do. And in situations where I just didn't really understand the question, that was when my anxiety would take over and say, we need to understand all of this. We need to know what's going on. If I didn't understand something from class, I would get really anxious about it and feel like I needed to watch every YouTube video I could find on it to try and get it to come in a different way, maybe to what to listen to it or to read a different thing on it because I needed to understand everything. And I would read all of the readings that were on every bit of our online sort of platform for every topic because I felt like I needed to just read it all. And then I'd go in and find that everyone else in our class had just not really bothered. And that didn't seem to affect them. (laughs) I just felt like I had to have every, I had to know everything. I had to read everything and if possible, understand everything. And so also the other, the key also seems to be that you were surrounded by tutors and other people who were able to give you support, who were not afraid of your anxiety and were able to actually support you in a helpful way, as opposed to I can imagine at a university where it's much bigger, there are thousands of students, the support systems are not really in place. Yeah, at university... I had a very clear understanding that I was just a number. I wasn't really anything. I was, I had a student number and that's the only way that I was really recognized and really only maybe on the computer. Like the teachers themselves wouldn't have known me from Lucy down the hall. Nobody knew who I was. So. I did have, I remember having one tutor in that brief English literature period who was very aware that I clearly was struggling and I would cry to her and she was very reassuring and she helped me get through the one essay that I did hand in the end. But she was also there when I then said, I can't manage this and this is not the place for me. And she was very understanding about that, that making sense. But in this small environment where there were 12 of us in the class, the most and there were sort of six tutors in the college. They all knew me by name and they were very open to me coming to see them, knocking on their office door, sending them an email and saying, I don't understand what I'm supposed to be writing or, you know, you've told me I need to do this, but there seem to be so many sections to it. I can't understand how you fit that into that word count. And they'd say, right, well, you only need to do this 
you know, this many words assigned to this section. They were very good at breaking things down for me and giving me much more specific boundaries for what needed to be there so that I wasn't seeing it as such an overwhelming big picture. It seems to me that actually, you know, what we need as a society is a a greater understanding and empathy for anxiety and not to be afraid of these kinds of uncomfortable emotions. And I'm thinking how that has affected me because I'm an anxious person. And although I don't have a medically diagnosed condition, it can affect me in such a way that I'm scared to speak up about something or I just muddle along and try and do my best. And because somehow to express, oh, I'm a bit anxious about this, feels like weakness, feels like people might laugh at me. And I guess it's, and what that has done for me, I feel, is that I've shut down, I sometimes can shut down this part of my anxiousness and I'm quite hard on myself. It's like, pull yourself together, don't be so ridiculous. And so then when someone else comes to me and shows their anxiety, I am potentially likely to shut them down. And it's, I'm ashamed to say, you know, if someone came to me, I don't understand this, you know, can you just go through it again with me. I might have a tendency to go, oh, come on, I've gone through it with you three times. What is wrong with you? And I say that, you know, I'm not, I'm not proud of it, but I think I do that because I shut down my own anxiety and I shut down this emotion and sadness and fear. And actually I put on this hard exterior. You know, tough lawyer that I am. And that's not healthy for me. It's not healthy for my relationships with friends or colleagues or whatever. And, you know, what you have said, it's just really made me think. Oh, well, I'm glad. Yeah, I'm very aware of people around me. I want people around me to know that I'm anxious because I, I made that, I feel like I do make that quite clear quite early on. And if I don't, then it will normally accidentally come out somehow. They'll see it or they'll experience it and then they'll know. But also I like to think that because of my anxiety, I'm quite good at identifying and helping when someone else feels anxious because I can really empathize with that feeling of not, of feeling, you know, out of control or whatever it is or overwhelmed by things and. I feel like I'm, I've kind of learned that people sometimes need what I need, which is just someone to sit and listen to them or, I don't know, provide something. But it's going to be different for everybody, what they need. What I've actually realised by doing this anxiety podcast, I've, I've come out as an anxious person. <laughs> I'm no longer hiding behind my strong lawyer persona, is that when I talk about it, uh, many, many people um, say, oh gosh, you know, I get anxious too. And it's been so refreshing and wonderful that uh, a number of men who seem to me, you know, fearless and capable have said, oh gosh, you know, I get anxious too. And you think, wow, you know, thank you. I always say thank you for sharing that with me because it makes me feel not so alone It and it allows me to let go of my barrier. And I hope that over what you know, over the journey that I'm taking, talking to people like you and learning about anxiety in myself and also acknowledging it in myself, is that I will be less harsh on myself and less harsh on other people. I feel like when I talk about my anxiety, it suddenly people come out of the woodwork. <laughs> They're very like, it suddenly makes people admit to how they find that they suffer as well. In fact, that happened when I 
was struggling at university doing my English. And I wrote this blog post about university and how it wasn't for me. It was a letter to university saying, I never thought we'd get on and I was right. And this is why. And I was just getting it all out of my system. And I posted it on social media and a girl on my course who I've never sp- had never spoken to, she was somewhere in that hall of 200 people, sent me a message saying, I've just read your blog post and I feel exactly the same way. Please, can we meet up and have a coffee and talk? And we did. And it turned out, actually, in the end, that both of us did drop out at the same time. We both didn't come back after Christmas, basically. But I followed her since, and she, too, found the path that she wanted to go on. She found a course more suited to her. She, you know, I think lived at home because she realized she didn't like living away from home. And it was really nice to know that we'd been together on that journey and that without me opening up, perhaps she would have done things differently. Perhaps she wouldn't have left. I don't know. But because I was open about my anxiety, that gave her that opening to be open about hers. And I love that. So now you've always written creatively and you mentioned your blog when you started to blog about your anxiety. Can you tell us about that? So I have always loved writing creatively. I find it just a a, an enjoyable activity. I did it. I ended up doing it at a as an AS level at school, and I just always got some satisfaction out of it. But it always was slightly autobiographical. I struggled to write creatively about things that weren't based on something that I'd experienced or was feeling. And so during my gap year, straight after I left school, I suddenly was just inspired to try and do some creative writing. And I started it by writing a sort of open letter to my surgeon who operated on me when I was a very tiny baby and I was very ill and would have died otherwise. And he operated on me and I felt like I needed to write a letter to him where I could get out how grateful I was that I am now 18 years old and I've done the whole of school and I'm now looking at what my future holds and none of it would have happened if he hadn't saved my life. And so I wrote this letter, which I did in fact send to him and he did not reply. But I created this blog so I could share this letter with other people and just share my gratitude with other people. And people, family members read it and they thought it was a very nice letter and they were all very lovely about it. And it inspired me to just keep writing these letters just about anything that came up. So, of course, I ended up writing the one to university, but I also wrote ones to my brain and I wrote ones to my body when I was particularly, if I was frustrated with my body about things and and it was just something that I just kept up all the time and every time something happened in my life that felt significant and carried with it some big feelings or thoughts about the world I would find a letter that I could write to something relevant and get all of it out and I would share it with friends and family and on this blog and people seem to like it. <laughs> they read it. I've read a number of your blog posts and they are very moving. And I find, you know, you write really well. And what I like about it is that you talk about what, that there's one about you and your boyfriend on the bridge and where an observer looking at you would see this particular picture, this image of this young couple. 
And then you go inside your feelings and what's going on underneath. And I, that is so cinematic in a way and really a very moving little vignette. And I, I do hope very much that you will continue writing and developing that skill because I feel that you really have a, have a talent there. What I will do is put a link to Ellie's blog on the show notes page. Now, you're currently working with children as, as a result of your Montessori course, and but you have other plans going into the future. I believe. Yeah. So I, yeah, I didn't go down the teaching route, but I'm a nanny at the moment. And I do, I love working with children, but obviously I love this creative writing side of my life. And I'm trying to do more of it now and submitting things to competitions. It's all very exciting. But I like the idea of being able to combine all the things in my life that I'm passionate about, which is writing and children and mental health and maybe write like a book for children about things like anxiety because I know that when I was little I had anxiety and as a child I don't think people think and look at sort of little children and think that they might be struggling with their mental health but I clearly was unknown to both me and everyone around me and I like the idea that I could write a lovely story that children could read that might resonate with them when they're very little. Wow, I think that would be really am- amazing and something very much needed. So I really do hope that comes about. Looking back at the path that your anxiety has taken you on, do you feel that it may have shaped your life in a positive way? Yeah. I mean, I wouldn't be where I am today if I was just if I'd just gone through life not being anxious. I mean, I can't really imagine that that life because it's just been so much part of my life. But it's because of my anxiety and particularly my anxiety around academia and everything that I ended up, you know, not continuing with that initial university degree. And I then discovered the Montessori world and that I then got into that and and now in the job that I'm in now that I've been in for three years looking after these children and I none of that would have happened if I hadn't had the anxiety that I had I probably would have continued with my English literature degree and come out with a degree in English literature and then god knows what I would have been doing now and also come out with uh, the degree but in a much more unhappy state possibly yeah I probably, yeah, I mean, can't predict what my mental health would have been like or my, yeah, emotional state after after three years of more of academia. But I, yeah, I definitely wouldn't be as comfortable in myself as I am now. I feel very much in tune with my body and myself that I'm very aware of my mental health and when I need help and when I am okay when I'm in a good space and when I'm not in such a good space and when I need to reach out for help and when I can manage it myself and all of that is stuff that I wouldn't have if I didn't have my anxiety. And I I feel that there is something also, you know, that is a wider message for other people, someone like me, where 
I have, you know, spoken about, you know, being tough on myself and not wanting to recognize my own anxiety. And I think that we can all go through life clamping down, not just on anxiety, but any emotion that feels a bit uncomfortable. And being self-aware and being able to be in touch with our feelings can only be a good thing because it means that we can be authentic we, it, it, with ourselves, but also with the people that we're with to be able to say, oh, you know what, I'm finding this really tough at the moment. There's no shame in that. But because we are maybe encouraged by society to kind of power on, you you can't speak about it. And then it goes underground and, it, and then it kind of bubbles up in all very unhealthy ways. I completely agree. I think that we need to be better at accepting that we can't all be 100% all the time and we can't be on it 100% all the time and feeling okay 100% all of the time. And that sometimes we need help from other people or sometimes we need space from other people. It all depends on what your mental health and your emotions might require. People around me are very aware of what I need because I'm very good at communicating it. Normally in the moment, I'm very good at communicating that I need someone to talk to or I need to be left alone. And I think more people need to learn to listen to themselves in that way because we don't do enough of it. And I think also sometimes we, if we're living with someone or just actually, you know, just, you know, with the ups and downs of life, it doesn't necessarily have to be anxiety as such, but, you know, someone's feeling a bit down or they are anxious about something or they're frustrated about something. To be able to sit sit with it, not necessarily physically sit with it, but kind of be with them and just go, you know, can I get you a cup of tea? And if they say, actually, leave me alone, not to take it personally, because I'm I'm guilty of this. I want to fix it. I want to make you better. And it's not my place to do it. But I feel maybe it's just, again, this anxiety about somebody else's anxiety, that it's okay just to go, okay, well, you know, let me know if there's anything you need and then let, let them be because that's what they've asked for. Yeah, I think the most important question to know to ask is, what do you need? (laughs) Because different people with different mental health struggles need different things and even need different things at different times. Sometimes I do need to be left alone, but sometimes I want someone to sit next to me, bring me a cup of tea and sit next to me and put something funny on the television. But you're not going to know that unless you ask me in the moment, what is it that you need right now? And I feel like I have been surrounded by quite a lot of very good people who are very good at doing that. And it's made me be much better at knowing to do that to other people. I think that's a really good place to to end this a wonderful, fascinating, wide-ranging and very moving conversation. So Ellie Russell, thank you very much. Thank you. That was Ellie Russell. You can find her blog at ellie-maysletters.blogspot.com. I will put the link on the show notes page. Details coming up. You can find links to some of the things we talked about, as well as photos and credits on the show notes page. You can use the bit.ly short link, bit.ly bit.ly hyphen anxiety advantage or go to my website tigerspirit.co.uk and click through to the anxiety advantage. Today Ellie shared with us her very personal story of how anxiety has affected her life from an early age. 
In upcoming episodes, we will change gear for a high-level exploration, digital life and anxiety with author James Wood, also known as J.W. Wood, and a light-hearted list of things that make us anxious with River Oosley-Brown. Subscribe or follow the Anxiety Advantage podcast on Spotify or wherever you listen to your podcasts, and new episodes will pop into your pod listening app as soon as they are published. It's free. I'm keen to share stories from people who have found ways to live positively with anxiety. It would be amazingly helpful for me and also our listeners to hear from you if you have a story about transforming anxiety for good or how you have discovered ways to thrive in your life. If you'd like to share your stories, please email me at anxietyadvantage.uk at gmail.com. I would love to hear from you. These podcasts come out of my personal experience and perspective, and I do not claim to speak for everyone who may be living with anxiety. Views expressed by my guests are entirely their own and do not represent my views. The content of these podcasts is for informational purposes only. If you are affected by anything in these podcasts, please seek the advice of your doctor or other qualified professional. Today, we looked at anxiety from the inside with Ellie Russell's personal story. What other aspects could we explore in these podcasts? Drop me a line with your ideas and let's see if we can feature some of them in future episodes. You can email me at anxietyadvantage.uk at gmail.com. If you've enjoyed this episode, I hope you will follow or subscribe to the podcast wherever you listen to your podcasts. It's free. New episodes will then pop into your podcast listening app as soon as they are published. I'm Yang Mei Ui. The website link again is bit.ly bit.ly forward slash anxiety advantage if you want to find the show notes page and other episodes. Or go to my website, tigerspirit.co.uk, and click through to The Anxiety Advantage. You can find me on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram, where I am at tigerspirituk. There is also a dedicated Anxiety Advantage Twitter account, at Anxiety Thriver. Or you can simply Google the podcast, The Anxiety Advantage, and my name, Yang Mei Ui. Thank you for listening and see you again soon.